Welcome to the Law Profit Podcast. I am Case Barnett, and this is a show for all lawyers. It's about discovering your own personal story and how owning your personal story can empower your practice. Uh, on this episode, if you're ever somebody who struggled with uh, holding on too tightly to your convictions and in a way that it prevents your growth, this is going to be a great episode for you. And today we are very lucky. We have Mr. Brian Gerwitz with us today. Thanks for joining us, Brian. You're welcome, Case. Uh, Brian spent 13 years as a prosecutor in the Orange County uh, District Attorney's Office. He has tried more than 50 criminal trials to verdict. He's done more than 40 juvenile trials. While he was a uh, deputy district attorney, he was the assistant head of court responsible for, for overseeing the Orange County District Attorney's largest trial unit with 20 attorneys and more than 1,000 cases. And he also worked on some of the most high-profile cases in Southern California. Uh, he was one of the people responsible for prosecuting the chief of staff for the Orange County Sheriff. Uh, he also did some work prosecuting a famous serial killer named Rodney Alcala. He also uh, prosecuted a judge for uh, possession of child pornography. He has a whole bunch of other fun cases. We'll probably have him on a different day to do a deeper dive on, on some of those great cases he's done. Uh, he's argued four cases before the California Supreme Court. And he also has tested, testified before the California legislature regarding several uh, criminal justice measures. He clerked for the U.S. District Court Judge Garland Burrell, and he spent some time at a large uh, corporate firm, Pillsbury Winthrop. He currently owns his own law firm, the Law Office of Brian Gerwitz, where he specializes in criminal defense, uh, does uh, motion and appeal work also, and he's run this practice for more than 12 years. So, Brian, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Glad to be on case. Cool, Brian. So, uh, you know what we're here talking about? Uh, you know, I, I want to learn more about your story. Have you talked to people about uh, some things that might motivate them? Uh, I'm hoping that through hearing your story, they'll see that, uh, you know, people face challenges and they're, over to, they're able to overcome those challenges to, to get their practice in a place they want. So, Brian, uh, you know, maybe we can start with when you're at the deputy, when you're at the district attorney's office and you're making that decision to leave the office, what's going on in your life? I was 37 years old. Um, kids were young, elementary school, and I was just at a crossroads in my life. It was a time where I thought, I don't want to be 65 years old someday and think I could have done something different. I could have made more money. I could have challenged myself more. Um, I could have done more. I didn't want to have that regret. Um, at the time I had a lot more experience in sort of the reading and writing and appellate world than most DAs did. So, um, I decided to apply to a big law firm because I really, really love law. I thought that I would be one of those people who enjoyed working in a big law firm, one of those rare people. Uh, people told me you're going to hate it. And I said, Nope, I'll be different. I love law. And, uh, I went there and enjoyed it for several hours and then um, quickly <laughs> quickly realized it was it was absolutely not for me. I have a great deal of respect for my colleagues, um, a lot of great lawyers I work with there, but that's not um, nearly as enjoyable for me as working in the criminal arena. And especially after being at a, at a decently high level in the DA's office and having so much responsibility on, on high profile cases and then going into a, a big law firm and having just a, a tiny role in um, 
in cases and, and not having that much uh, control as I was used to. It just, it just wasn't for me. You're at the DA's office for about 10 or 12 years, right? And yeah, then, just, under, just under 13, correct. Okay, so you go to the DA's office, you go to Pillsbury, you know pretty quickly it's not your thing, and then you spend some time um, helping the recording industry with some piracy issues and uh, trying, you know, representing them with that for about a year, right? Correct. I did that for about a year, um, but the music industry is going through a lot of turmoil, and there were some layoffs. Fortunately, I was not one of them, but I thought, you know, the writing might be on the wall. I don't want my job to be gone in a year or two. So that's when, um, you know, I had some hard discussions with my wife and um, I decided to open up my own practice. And my boss at the recording industry was good enough to allow me to sort of transition. I, you know, it was good for me. It was good for them until they could hire somebody that they wanted to for several months. Um, as I was starting my own criminal defense practice, I continued to do on an outside counsel basis, some of the anti-piracy work for the recording industry. And, um, you know, then, then it was full-time criminal right away. So tell me about that transition though, right? Was that at this time, when you make that decision that you're gonna open your own criminal defense practice, did you know, hey, this is the thing. I, I've, I've tried Pillsbury. Uh, I tried this other thing with, with the recording industry you know what, this is my thing? Or did you go in a little more hesitant? You, know, you got the discussions with your wife. Can you tell me about that process you're going through in making that really hard decision after you made those other two quick career changes? Right, it was um, very interesting. I mean, I applied, I should say, I interviewed with the public defender's offices and DA's offices out of law school. So I wasn't one of those people that said, I'll never be a defense attorney. But as a DA, I was pretty hardcore. Um, I was not, um, I know I would not have been the first choice of a lot of defense attorneys to um, have on the other side. And I was, I was it, criminal defense was not a natural fit for me um, when I was in the DA's office, but I gave it a lot of thought. Um, and, you know, over the couple of years after I left the DA's office, um, the idea started to become more and more appealing. So I decided to start my own practice. And what I thought I would do would be a very, very heavy um, appellate caseload as a defense attorney, sort of help out other defense attorneys, because I had developed so much of an expertise in that um, in the DA's office. So I got on all these, all these panels where I could get all this appointed work to um, do indigent uh, appeals. And I think I got two of them. I never even, I did the work. I never even submitted the bills very, very quickly. My trial caseload exploded at a rate that I never thought it would representing people in the trial courts. And I've, I've, I do some interesting appeal appellate issues when they come up uh, on an appointed basis. I'm sorry, on a, um, on a retained basis, but you know, I've never done any of the panel work and I just don't do the, um, even close to the heavy appellate caseload that I thought I would when I started my own practice, it, it very quickly became a trial court caseload. Well, and, and I, so what, what I think is really interesting about your journey is you're making this decision to go start your own criminal defense practice, right? Mm -hmm. And at that time, I mean, it's gotta be scary for you to a certain degree because for, for a lot of reasons, but when you're going out in private practice, you're, you're out there without a net, right? And, and, and not, not only without a net, but it was, 
I started my firm basically July 1 of 2009. And I was planning, you know, for maybe several months before that, right in the middle of the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. So people were saying, don't do it, don't do it. But it just, it just felt right. So tell me more about it just felt right. All right. Because I think part of your, your journey and your story too, is that you were this hardcore deputy district attorney, right? You, right. and you had a reputation among the private criminal defense bar that you were not a guy to mess with. You got a case with Gerwitz, you know, if he's got, a, he's going to put his boot on your throat, <laughs> you know, I, I mean that in a good way, right? You're a prosecutor. Like that's, right. you know, and it wasn't in a, in a rude or inappropriate way, but it was, you Usually. know, <laughs> but you know, it, so I, I think that that must've been, I imagine difficult for you or something you had to wrestle with, right? Is, is in, in essence, I think a lot of people see it as switching sides, right? hundred percent. It was switching sides. And, um, it was compounded in my case because my wife was also a deputy or my wife was at that time, a deputy DA, we were in the office together. So, you know, that, that was kind of an added, that was sort of an added dynamic, but, um, I remember one moment of being uncomfortable. I went in department C5, which is our big calendar court for felonies. The first time I went in and I stood in the defense attorney line instead of the DA line to wait for a case to be called. And I remember some of my colleagues kind of looking over me smiling, like, what are you doing on that side? That felt awkward. I, that was my only time I felt awkward for whatever reason it was. I don't know how to say this. It was shockingly, it was a shockingly easy transition. Maybe some of that was the fact that I had had a two-year gap, but um, I just took to it like like a duck to water. It was never it was never awkward. And and what I've what I've come to realize is, for people that make the switch, you're going to be the same type of defense attorney you were as a DA. So if you were a hardworking, aggressive DA, you're going to be a hardworking aggressive defense attorneys. If you're one of those DAs that was like, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll do what you want to the defense. It's not like you become a great, you know, defense attorney because you, 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 you didn't care that much about crime and punishment. It's that that's just your nature. And you're going to have that same sort of lackadaisical nature from what I've mm -hmm. seen when, when you switch sides. And so, um, it was just a, um, it was, it was a profound experience to switch sides and to start representing human beings for the first time in my life after um, not doing so for 13 years, after representing, you know, the people of the state of California, which is not really a client in the technical sense, it's not a human being, and then representing Fortune 500 companies for Pillsbury and then representing the recording industry, then actually sitting down in my office representing real human beings and, and being with them at the most traumatic times of their life was just, um, it was just a profound experience. That, that's all I could say. I mean, it was, it was um, unlike anything I thought I would be experiencing when I, when I did this. How does that feel? Tell us more about when you were with these people. Cause I imagine when you're DA, was it different than when you were a DA, how you viewed those individuals? Oh, how I viewed those individuals. Absolutely. So let me say, one thing first, in terms of how it was when I was a DA, the closest 
a DA experiences that is dealing with a victim. But when you're dealing with a victim, everything that the victim tells you, you might have to provide to the defense under your um, constitutional discovery obligations. So there's not, um, there's a distance that you have to maintain in order to um, preserve the integrity of the case. You don't get that close to people. I mean, you could develop good relationships and, and, and the gratitude of a victim is, is a wonderful thing. I still have um, some relationships with now with, with certain victims of, of cases that I dealt with, but it's nowhere near when you sit down with another human being and you hear, even though you've just known them for a few minutes, hear about some of the um, most traumatic, most personal details of their lives. Oftentimes things, if you develop a good relationship with them at the outset, often things that they've never told anybody. I mean, that's a common experience that I sit down in my office and within an hour, I'm asking questions, learning about things and they're telling me, wow, I can't believe that I've never told anybody about my molestation or about the theft that I was committing that nobody knew about or you know, this childhood trauma I experienced. Um, and it was profound. And you don't get that when you're a DA, you don't see that. And a lot of defense attorneys don't understand it. They say, why is this um, DA treating my client like they're, they're subhuman? And I think for DAs or, you know, at least for me, I'll own this. Um, you're not really prosecuting a human being when you're a DA. You're prosecuting, in my mind, uh, it, they, they were not a human being. They were a rap sheet and they were a police report. Um, you know about, you know, one millionth of 1% of their life. Um, oftentimes the worst thing they ever did. You don't hear often about their childhood because you're not meeting with them. The, the rules don't generally allow you to meet with, um, with the defendants you're prosecuting, um, except in some limited situations. Um, in state court, especially where I practice, you, um, you don't, hear that much about their lives. I do a lot of federal work now on the defense side. And one of the advantages is the judge and the prosecutor, they get to know a heck of a lot more about the sort of the texture of a person's life and their background and, and what got them to court. And that's very, very advantageous. But um, I understand, I don't like it, but I understand when a DA is looking at a client of mine with such tunnel vision and, and pursuing what I consider to be, you know, an unreasonable objective. Um, sometimes defense attorneys will get mad, especially, especially some of the younger prosecutors where let's say it's a certain, you know, mid-level misdemeanor or something like that. And the DA who's 25 or 26 is treating this like the crime of the century. And the, um, the defense attorney is going absolutely nuts. Like how could this DA have such bad perspective? How could they be so close-minded? How could they be so absolutely insane on a case like this? And I just kind of smile and I say, yep, it's frustrating for me. But the only thing I realized is that I was a lot worse when I was a DA. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that perspective uh, saves my sanity sometimes. Yeah, it seems like um, this, this sort of evolution of your career uh, and the switching sides has, has changed you as a human. Do you, do you feel like, and can you talk to me more about how representing the defendants in these cases has changed you, changed you as a human? 
Um, that's a good question. How's it changed me as a human? It, um, I don't mean to sound corny, but when I started doing defense work, I remember talking to, um, having lunch right, right, you know, within a few months of me starting with Richard Schwartzberg, who's, um, he's no longer in Orange County, but he was a um, very well-known appellate defense attorney. And I remember describing it to him and saying, this is like almost spiritual when you're representing these people at the toughest times of their lives. And um, it's made me more honest about myself. It's definitely made me more compassionate. It's made me more compassionate about my own struggles that I've gone through, that we've all gone through. Um, 100% I'm a, I'm a, I'm a changed person. Um, I look back sometimes and just shake my head at some of the positions I took as a DA. And I don't, I don't, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm beating myself up over it. That's, that's what I knew. I was taking my limited life experience with me into the DA's office. And, um, that's what a lot of people do. And, um, I remember, uh, a commissioner, uh, Jim Odriozola, when I was in juvenile court starting out, he had done both sides. He was a prosecutor for a short time and then became a defense attorney before he went to the bench. And um, I remember him saying something like, you know, you guys really need to do both sides, you guys in the DA's office. And I remember thinking he was nuts. Like, why would I ever do something like that was what I probably told him. And um, it would be a very different experience if every prosecutor had represented human beings. And quite frankly, it would, it's the same on the other side as well. There are so many, um, for lack of a better term, true believers on both sides who just don't understand the perspective of the other side. And um, it is just a tremendous advantage to me um, to have experienced both sides. I feel very, very fortunate. Yeah, I, I know, you know, in, in military court, and I love the JAG lawyers, I believe, have to right. prosecute both right. sides. Um, and, and I think that it's interesting for me to hear you talk about um, your limited life experience versus life experience now and how that impacts how you lawyer, how you live. And I think that's something that we're looking at a lot with, um, with attorneys across the board is it's that life experience that if you're open to it and if you allow it to is going to change you in a, in a good way exactly and turn your practice into something special for you as opposed to, you know, so many lawyers, they the unhappy with their, their lives and their jobs and things like that. If you allow those life experiences to change you and impact your practice, it's, it's going to be good for you a bunch of different ways. Right. And I was, um, I, I wouldn't even say necessarily so much. Of, I mean, I was a hardcore DA, but the, the better way to kind of describe it is, you know, my personality, my, my, my profession, it was, it was all encompassing. And I was in many ways, a true believer. And what I, when I, what I mean about that is, for example, I took a three month leave of absence in 2004 to um, be the assistant campaign director statewide of the no on proposition 66 campaign. That was the initiative that would have um, the first initiative that would have um, largely, you know, abolished or, or at least um, weakened the three strikes law. And I just thought that would be, you know, that was the worst idea in the world. And so I took this leadership role in it, just believing so, so strongly um, that that law shouldn't be changed. And um, our side prevailed. And then a couple of years later, it, it, you know, a similar initiative 
actually passed, but I was doing that, not just in Orange County. I was doing this. I mean, I wasn't just a prosecutor in Orange County. I was active in these issues at the statewide level. Same thing with the California DA's Association. For many, many years, I was extremely active in their legislative committee. I was writing um, legislation. I was testifying on various bills that would strengthen the criminal justice system. I say strengthen in the in the way that you know conservatives use that use that term. And now I'm on the board of governors of the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice, active on their legislative committee, writing legislation to to do exactly the opposite of what I was doing before. And um, I think somebody might fairly look at that and say, okay, well, he's either schizophrenic or he's opportunistic <laughs> doing, doing one thing, but it's, it's, it's the experiences I've had doing this that have led me to realize that um, the ideas I had when I was, when I was a younger man just are not, um, they're, just, they're just wrong in my opinion, knowing what I know now. Yeah. It's gotta be hard to face that, but, but at the same time, I think it, it's a growth that, many people don't experience because they hold so tightly to their convictions or they, they right. you know, they believe it at the time so wholeheartedly that they can't open up to it. Do you think that, um, at what point do you think you had this shift? Was it as soon as you started doing criminal defense? It was after you left the DA's office. Is it as you handled a couple of cases? Like, tell me about when you think that growth occurred. Okay. Some of the growth, probably came at the end of my career in the DA's office. So in fact, one of them sort of relates to a case I know you handled case when you were in the public defender's office. There was a guy um, who was prosecuted for, who was, being, who was in jail for possession of child pornography. And um, his name was Derek Uncha Chamberlain. Yeah. Derek Chamberlain. And um, Mr. Chamberlain complained and, and I know this from the public record, I, I know that I'm not, you know, not from attorney client privilege as you've told me case, but he complained to you that his life might've been at risk being in the jail. You reported that to um, the command staff at the Orange County Jail. And shortly thereafter, he was murdered by several inmates in a vicious lengthy um, jailhouse beating and abused in the worst ways possible. Um, while the deputies in the sort of the center pod that looks out onto Theo Lacey jail were watching the World Series playoffs. And there was, in my opinion, substantial evidence that the DA, that the um, certain members of the sheriff's department turned a blind eye toward it, toward, the, toward this uh, killing as it happened. And so how does that relate to my work? That was toward the end of my tenure, my last year or two in the DA's office. And I was assigned to be one of the, um, I think there were three of us, one of the three prosecutors investigating the sheriff's department in front of the grand jury. And we were calling a ton of witnesses, inmates, command staff, and so forth for the grand jury to find out were the deputies involved? Was there a cover-up? And I left midway through that investigation. I, I, I uh, resigned and got a job at Pillsbury. But um, that was one of a number of things that that affected me. Um, it started to change my views when I learned about what really happens in the jail, when I learned about the racial politics, when I learned about you've got the whites and you've got the 
California Hispanics and you've got the Mexican Hispanics and you've got all these racial groups with their own leadership structure. And it, and it sickened me, not so much that they had that structure because that didn't surprise me, but that the uh, members of law enforcement, the sheriff's deputies sort of honored it. And they worked within that structure to sort of control the jails. Um, they would talk to the representative of the whites or the, or the, you know, the Southern Hispanics or what have you. And, um, and I saw that what happens in, in, in jails and prisons. And now I hear those stories every day, but that was pretty new to me as a DA. And that really turned me off. Um, the other thing, when I was in the DA's office during the last five years, especially that I was in the office, I was working on higher and higher profile cases, not just the investigation of the Chamberlain case, which, you know, involved an investigation and part of my Corona, the sheriff himself. But like you said, I prosecuted the assistant sheriff for bribery, um, George Jaramillo. I prosecuted some other people. And without going into too much detail, I was very unhappy with how political those prosecutions became um, and, and the extent to which politics was interfering with um, what I thought was our duty to do an ethical job, prosecuting or not prosecuting. And um, that was in large part what, what caused me to say, you know, I need to um, consider my options. I don't wanna just get higher and higher in the politics and be, be, do this for the rest, the rest of my life. I wanna try something new. And um, I'm gonna go be a phenomenal civil litigator, you know, Pillsbury, which lasted for, again, four hours of happiness. <laughs> the, um, view, the view was great. The furniture was great. The office was great. <laughs> You've been there, Case. I have. I, I, I spent a year at uh, Cedric Dietert, Moran and Arnold up in San Francisco. I spent a year doing it, and it was about a year too much. Um, and, and then I, I went to the PD's office and just had a great time and then you know, started my practice and right. uh, worked, worked with my dad for a while. And uh, it's cool getting to talk to people like you, Brian, and get to, to know people like you and to find out these parts of your story. Because I think it's really interesting to me, and I hope for people out there to see the, the personal growth that has happened from the switch to DA, from DA to, to criminal defense attorney. Right. Um, and, and the positions that you've had other places. Um, I think that's, that's fascinating. What about now with how you're running your practice now? Uh, you have one attorney working for you, correct? Right. Kyle Molchan, um, he's, a, he's a great young lawyer, although he's now worked with me for almost eight years. So I, I keep thinking of he's been with me for a few years, but those years, those years, <laughs> those years are becoming longer and longer. He's, yeah. he's great. I couldn't, um, I couldn't do what I did without, um, do what I do without Kyle. Um, he's a, he's a great assistant. He's, um, had some phenomenal success in trial himself. And, um, I work with him. He's the only person on my staff. My office is, is, um, in a larger suite, uh, that's owned by a friend of mine who's an estate planning lawyer, uh, Todd Littman. And, um, I share his receptionist. Uh, she answers my phones. And so that's, that's sort of the, the, employment structure in my office. Yeah. Tell, tell me about your decision to, to 
keep your your firm with you and Kyle and run it that way as opposed to trying to grow it or um, focusing on what you choose to focus on? Like, can you tell me tell me more about those choices and those decisions and how you're happy or not happy with that? Sure. So I don't believe it would really be feasible for me to grow my practice much. And, and here's why. In a big civil firm, as you know, the um, money is made by the hour. And so you'd get leverage by hiring associates, um, billing them out at X dollars per hour, paying them less than X dollars per hour. And the more associates you have, the more business you have, uh, you grow and grow and um, you become a money-making machine that way. Criminal defense is different in that um, generally you're, you're paid flat fees and there's only so much, I mean, your, your rates can certainly go up and I know, um, you know, different attorneys are going to charge substantially different for the same type of case based on their, their reputation and so forth. So your, your charges could go up, but um, what you really can't do is have hundreds of cases at the same time where you're fanning them out to associates, unless you want to be a mill. And there are a number of law firms in Orange County and elsewhere, it's not just an Orange County phenomenon, that are criminal defense where they will hire people and um, have a massive internet presence and bring people in and they're, um, they're, they're a mill and they're going to mm-hmm. people with very, very little experience, often very, very little talent. And um, it's, it's terrible representation. And I have absolutely zero desire to represent people in that way so I could, you know, have a bigger revenue every year. Yeah, it's, it seems like the heart of your practice is being able to to give your heart and attention to a number exactly, of people. Exactly, exactly. When somebody comes in, you know, especially a, maybe a less sophisticated client, they come into a mill, you know, based on calling your toll-free number and, you know, they get assigned to one of the, you know, dozen recent law school graduates who work for you who are paid very, very little. Maybe the client isn't as particular about who they hire, but generally speaking, if, you know, for the, for the people, I think with, with good reputations, the clients are coming in wanting to be represented by that person. They don't want to be um, pawned off on somebody with no experience when the, the partner has no um, real involvement in the negotiation or the litigation of the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's an important decision that, that you make and that people make and, and, um, it's, it's a hard decision, but it, it's, uh, it's again, you being true to yourself. And it sounds like it has a lot to do with when you're making that transition, your own personal growth as to what is important to you. Right. Um, so also what, tell me about some empowering beliefs that you've had that have gotten you to this place. And then also some, some disempowering beliefs, some things that you thought that may have inhibited, you know, prevented your growth. Empowering, um, I think it would be to trust my instincts. I remember um, when I was going up to law school and say goodbye to my grandfather um, as I was driving up to uh, Northern California. And I said, hey, grandpa, do you have any advice for me? He said, yeah, take, he was kind of a crotchety guy. And he said, yeah, take your own damn advice. And, um, <laughs> and there are a lot of times where I was so afraid of doing something my own way, but it just felt like I was doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, starting my own practice in the middle of a recession 
was a great financial move for me. Um, specializing in writs and appeals, even though people said, oh, no, you need to go to a different unit in the DA's office. You know, don't go to writs and appeals. Your, your career will be tanked. I got a promotion, um, you know, at the very, very earliest stages of it, of, of, of people at my level. Um, I think it's trusting where my instincts are. Uh, that my instincts are correct, I should say. Um, I don't always do it. And I would say that's, um, that's uh, probably the most, um, the thing that, that's, that's been beneficial to me. Same thing goes in trial. I remember um, after a trial, getting, uh, talking to a judge, um, it was, I was very, very happy. My client was acquitted of some uh, very, very serious charges. And I was talking to Judge Rogan after a, a man I have tremendous respect for. And um, it was very meaningful. He was complimenting me for having an authentic voice. And he was telling his own story about how when he was a deputy DA before he became a congressman and then you know, uh, a judge in Orange County after he left Congress, he was saying that when he was a young prosecutor, um, a mentor came up to him and said, hey, Jim, uh, you're not gonna sound like the trial lawyer you're gonna be until about five years pass. So it really goes, yeah, and you know who you're gonna sound like then? He goes, who? He said, you're gonna sound like yourself. And that's, that's just um, really good advice for me. I know that I don't try a case the same as other people. I have a different approach. Um, I'm not a theatrical guy. I'm not, I might be more law focused than other people. Um, I'm not, I'm not your typical trial lawyer, but I've, I got great results as a DA doing trial and I've, and I've had excellent results as a defense attorney doing trials. And so learning to trust myself is probably the best lesson. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today to tell for telling us your story. I loved hearing about your growth uh, as a lawyer, but particularly as a human. And it's really cool because uh, you know, what we're seeing is that as people open themselves up to to who they are personally, they grow and they become better in who they are as a person and, and better in their practice. So it's cool to see that from you. So I really appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Case. It's a great program. Thanks a lot, bud. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.